So I'm going to talk a little bit about Chopin today. Uh, Chopin was born March 1st, 1810, and then died at a very young age in 1849 at the age of 30. At the age of 39. Uh, so, as, as she said, we're celebrating her bicentennial, the bicentennial date of his birth. Uh, so. This afternoon, I'd like to explore with you some sources of Chopin's romantic imagination. And I would just like to tell you, I'm going to read through a, a script I'll be speaking and reading, but I, I encourage you to ask questions at any time along the way. Just interrupt me, please. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be looking at you know, what inspired him to creation, and just as importantly, what didn't inspire him to creation. And what musical traces from his world do we find in his compositions? Indeed, a, a general trend in the Romantic age is that composers, more so than in the preceding classical age, sought inspiration from the world around them, uh, especially from literature, poetry, art, and nature. Uh, let me give you some examples. It was, it was in the 19th century that we have the emergence of the programmatic symphony. Uh, which would eventually be called the tone poem. Uh, and th these are works whose form and content are determined by a story or experience outside of the music. So we have Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, uh, which is a story told in music of an artist who in the depths of despair brought about by hopeless love has poisoned himself with opium. So it's a musical telling of that story. Or Liszt's Faust Symphony, which was influenced by Goethe's tragic play, Mendelssohn's Italian symphony, his Scottish symphony, which was inspired by his grand European tours, uh, and then the many, many tone poems of Richard Strauss, uh, Death and Transfiguration, Don Quixote, Don Juan, also Sprach Zarathustra. Strauss actually boasted uh, that he was capable of letting the audience know musically whether a character in one of his tone poems was eating with a spoon or a fork. <laughs> uh, that, that's nonsense. <laughs> you can't really do that. Uh, in the piano repertoire, romantic composers also tended to use uh, descriptive titles. We have Schumann's Carnival, Forest Scene, Scenes from a Ball, Lists, Gray Clouds, Mephisto Waltz, Mephisto Polka, uh, Mendelssohn, Songs Without Words. And a, a composer you might not be familiar with, Charles Alkin, a contemporary of Chopin, uh, he wrote well, two pieces I'm going to mention, Funeral on the uh, Funeral March on the Death of a Parrot, uh, it was his own parrot who died, and then Song of the Insane at the Seaside, so descriptive titles that influenced the content of the music. And then there was Chopin. Uh, Chopin refused to take part in this trend. He hated descriptive titles uh, in any hint of an underlying program. This doesn't mean that he didn't use underlying programs, but he never told anybody. He didn't want to make that public. Uh, he wanted his works to stand musically on their own. And he simply named his works by genre and opus number. So etudes, opus 10, preludes, opus 28, scherzo, opus 20. Uh, the works that do have descriptive titles, and there are a few, are not by Chopin, but by his, his publishers, who wanted to increase the market you know, value of his pieces. So you have the revolutionary etude, the minute waltz. They're not by Chopin. Uh, 
Thus, uh, Chopin's a bit of a throwback to classical composers and is an enigma as to the sources of his imagination. I just want to tell you two other interesting things about uh, Chopin. Uh, Chopin was the first major composer, and perhaps the only since, who did not write in the principal musical genres of his time. Okay. Did not write in all the principal musical genres of the time. He didn't write any symphonies. He didn't write any string quartets. He didn't write an opera, even though people urged him. They wanted him to write an <coughs> opera desperately. Uh, he didn't write any religious works. Uh, and he only composed just a handful of songs. Chopin restricted himself entirely to the piano. So the majority of his works are for solo piano, and the remaining ones involve the piano in some way, the piano concerto, a sonata for cello, uh, a trio. Uh, but everything he wrote involves the piano. But the, the truly amazing thing about this is that Chopin, as a composer of the piano, acquired a reputation of the highest order on the basis of a minimum of public performances. Minimum of public performance. He only performed in public about 30 times during his lifetime. It's just incredible to think he gained this reputation, but did have these public concerts. If you compare this to Franz Liszt, his, the contemporary, who is also considered <coughs> on the same par with Chopin, virtuoso piano player, during an eight-year period from 1849 to 1847, Liszt performed in public a thousand times. <laughs> okay, you know, just all of, just toured constantly, and that's the way he developed his reputation. Chopin, no. Thus, it would seem that, that Chopin was not particularly interested in the world around him, especially when it came to finding inspiration. He didn't like to perform in public. He was not particularly interested in literature or art, although his friends were. He was friends with Delacroix. He was, he was in a relationship with, a, uh, with Georges Sand, a literary figure. He avoided public activism even though his native Poland was being torn apart by Russia. And although he was raised as a Catholic, he was not devout and did not outwardly practice his faith. But there's one domain of human activity that is found throughout his music, one domain in music that does speak of the external world, and that is dance. Uh, Chopin composed roughly 200 works throughout his lifetime, and 100 of those are dances. And the remaining works uh, often incorporate dance elements within them. So his earliest pieces throughout his life, his last piece is a dance. He started composing polonaises. His last piece was a mazurka. So he's a dance composer. Uh, in the remaining time, I'd just talk, like to talk a little bit about social dancing in Chopin's time. Uh, we're going to end up then uh, with a, a beautiful performance. Uh, it's difficult today. Oh, do you have any questions so far? Just, Throw that out, because that will keep going. <laughs> yes. okay. I'll, I'll pass the mic down. Big crowd. So we'll do it the same way we always do for our regulars. We have my colleague Matt on this side of the room with a mic, and I'll be on this side. How widely was his music disseminated to households, to um, you know, ordinary people taking piano lessons to work on? 
Well, Chopin was one of the first composers to take control of his own publishing in a very serious way. So he had multiple publishers in three different countries uh, that would publish his music in England, in France, and Poland. And so his music was disseminated after 1830 fairly widely, but, but it's, it, it was more performed in households and salons in, in, in Paris and Vienna not so much in England, where he was considered a little risque in his chromaticism. And so the, the, the publications we do find there tend to take out uh, the offensive chromaticism. <laughs> we have another question over here. I, I had a question about the Polonaise. I've always associated that, or people have associated with his Polish nationalism and patriotism and love of freedom. But do you mean that was just put together by the publisher? Polonaise? Uh, no, that was that was that was a that was a social dance. It actually dates back to the 1600s. So that was a that was a contemporary ballroom dance going on. But then Chopin entered into that and then published his own polonaises, waltzes and mazurkas. But that was a current dance. So you have that separate ballroom dance culture. Then you have Chopin's music entering into that. So that had been established. Okay, we have a question up front. Do we know why Chopin was interested in dance? What 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 interested? How did he awaken his interest in dance? Do you know? Yeah. Well, this this has to do with the next part that I'm gonna I'm gonna go over. So maybe this will answer your question. Uh, yeah, it's difficult today uh, in this digital world of endless entertainment opportunities uh, at our fingertips to appreciate the vital role that dance had in 19th century society, and in, in also earlier times as well. Dance was by far the most common social activity and was practiced by all levels of society. Uh, for the lower classes, it provided a diversion from their hardships and poverty. For the upper classes, they used it as a way of defining themselves both individually within their class and collectively apart from the lower classes. So it was a political means of defining themselves. And it was, and dance was just not what you did on the dance floor, it was how you carried yourself, how you sat down, how you walked across the room. And the upper classes learned these coded bodily behaviors at a very young age. So it would become naturalized. So people could instantly tell by the way somebody was sitting what class they were from. Uh, and for everybody, it was a vehicle for courtship. It's where you met your future wife. Uh, and where you wooed her, and for ceremonies and celebrations. So in short, where everybody, where, where, wherever anybody got together, with a group of people, there was bound to be dancing. Uh, so that, that's partly why, I mean, he couldn't avoid the dance. Uh, nonetheless, one of, the, one of the false images of Chopin that has survived in the 20th century is that of a dreamy, romantic poet whose music transports listener into otherworldly realms. Such an image promoted a criticism that treated Chopin's music on a purely cerebral level and divorced the body from it, uh, separated the body. In other words, his music was tended to be viewed as, as an autonomous art. One French critic writes, there is nothing to remind us that it is a human being that produces this music. And another writes, on taking up the works of Chopin, you are entering as if it were a fairyland untrodden by human footsteps. 
So part of my project is to put the body back into Chopin and back into his music. Uh, if there is any suggestion of utilitarian association for Chopin's music, it undercut his perceived spiritual purity. Uh, no doubt, Chopin's progressing illness, he died of tuberculosis, and he, was, he had bouts of it throughout his life, uh, contributed to this sense of otherworldliness surrounding him. If you've ever seen pictures, there are some uh, early uh, photographs of him. He has this hollow-faced, very slight, small man. Uh, one particular bad bout in 1838 reduced Chopin to a mere 98 pounds, and toward the end of his life, he had to be carried up and down stairs by his manservant. You know, he died at 39, so he, he wasn't old at all. But, I mean, he was reduced to a very feeble state. Always quick to seize upon a poetic image of her lover, Georges Sand, who was in a relationship with Chopin for 10 years, referred to Chopin as her beloved little corpse. Uh, that being sick to death, made music that fully smelled of paradise. So, the research I've completed, however, reveals that Chopin, despite his frail health, was both a really good dancer, great dancer, and a dance musician. I mean, he composed over half his works are dances. You would expect that. Uh, so, for example, in 1825, he committed, this is when he was very young, about 15, he committed to verse a night of wild dancing where he spent half the time playing for the dancers and the rest of the time dancing. And toward the end of the evening, while dancing in Mazurka, he slipped and sprained his ankle. See, he tends to record dance events if something unusual happened, uh, which kind of suggests that it was such a common activity that dancing on its own right wasn't worthy of putting down in his letters or journals. Uh, in a letter from November 1829, he brags about an evening party where a beautiful woman asked him to be her partner in a mazurka. And moreover, she had just refused to dance with a Polish general. <laughs> and while dancing the mazurka at a soiree in December of 1830, one of his friends took to the floor pretending to be some sort of sheep. <laughs> this, this is in his letters. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Although accounts of his dancing activity declined after he left Warsaw because of his declining health, uh, they do continue. And the latest account I've found dates from November of 1847, uh, when Chopin played for dancers at a soiree in Paris. And I should also mention that Warsaw, the city where Chopin grew up and spent his first 20 years, was a thriving, bustling, cosmopolitan center. This is before the November uprising of 1830 where Russia came in and squashed uh, Warsaw and started to, to take away all, all the cultural uh, activity. It was a thriving cosmopolitan center in the midst of a cultural re uh, renaissance. Uh, and importantly for Chopin, ballroom dancing was woven into its social fabric. It seems that almost any occasion warranted a ball. And I've gone through the Warsaw papers. Uh, there are two daily papers in Warsaw. Uh, and the, the, the newspapers ran notices for charity balls, friendly balls, children's balls, birthday balls, professional assembly balls, saints day balls, balls for foreign dignitaries, balls for the commemoration of historic events, military balls, political balls, balls for organized for the poor, 
Uh, and masquerade balls, which was the favorite type of ball for the, for the pools, and also for, uh, in, in Vienna and Paris. Uh, Warsaw, which was predominantly Roman Catholic, uh, celebrated Carnival, the season of Carnival from Epiphany, January 3rd uh, through uh, Lent, so roughly about a two and a half month period, uh, celebrated uh, Carnival with no less zeal than Vienna and Paris. Uh, during Carnival, it was not uncommon for Warsaw to have 10 to 15 balls in one night. Uh, and these, in addition to dancing in the four main theaters in Warsaw and in private salons. Uh, indeed, a significant part of Warsaw's economy was built around Carnival, the dancing season. Warsaw's newspapers were filled with advertisements for the latest costumes, the rental of dance halls for musicians to provide music, for caterers who would provide choice food and beverages. Dancing would begin around nine o'clock and then continue to dawn. And around 12 o'clock, you would break for dinner, or, or yeah, you would break for dinner. So it was an all-night affair. Uh, and for, uh, the notices, for various perfumes you could buy, which were doused on the dance floor, not only to mask unpleasant odors, but also to keep the dust down. <laughs> Any questions? Maybe this is a good point for some, yep, up, oh, coming. You made reference to an activity at the age of 15. I was wondering more generally, how precocious was he? How early did his star begin to rise as a pianist and or composer? Yeah, very early. His, his earliest compositions are Polonaises uh, that, he, that he composed uh, when he was seven years old. Um, so, and then he was recognized, his, his, his ability was recognized very early. He began to play at the various salons uh, around Warsaw. Uh, so he was recognized as a virtuoso and a composer extremely or before he was 10. Uh, and then he, he continued to develop in Warsaw. He went to the uh, Warsaw Con uh, Conservatory of Music, had a really good foundation of musical studies on a teacher, uh, uh, Elsner, uh, who basically said, you know, you develop your own way. You know, I'm just going to sort of point you <laughs> in a direction. Uh, and gave his first public performances in, in, as a concerto performer uh, in 1829. Uh, so, and at that point, he felt he had sort of, he was a little too big for, he, he wanted to go explore musical horizons. And his intent was to go to Vienna and then to Italy uh, in 1830. But then when he got to Vienna, the November uprising happened uh, in, in Warsaw. The cadets at the local academy rose up and then everybody else sort of, they wanted to oust the, the Russian ruler at the time. Uh, Warsaw was under partition. Uh, at that time uh, by Russia, Prussia, and Austria. Uh, so this started a revolution that was quickly squashed, and at that point then he felt he could really never come back, so he went then on to Paris. But his, his, his ability was recognized very early. Matt, how about your side of the room? Anybody over there? <coughs> Any other questions on this side? Oh, you have one there? Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to know how you define chromaticism. Oh, chromaticism, yeah. Uh, well, uh, pieces uh, in, in, in Western tonality are based on what's either the major or the minor scale. Uh, so the major scale 
comprises seven pitches, the minor scale as well, or the minor scale is used for more melancholy. So if a piece of music uses just those pitches in the scale, the seven note scale, it's referred to as diatonic. But most compositions uh, of any interest will use pitches outside of that scale as well. Uh, like here, here is, I'm playing a pitch outside of the scale, it kind of, it kind of sounds a little out of whack, you know. This is, this is raised scale to be four. Uh, so that's what's called a chromatic pitch. Pitches outside of the diatonic scale. Okay, but let's get into the dances. Uh, three main dance types of Chopin, the waltz, mazurka, and polonaise. Uh, the waltz is, is, as you probably know, Viennese origins, and then the polonaise and the mazurka of Polish origin. I'll start with the waltz. Uh, throughout Europe, it was the waltz which ruled as the most popular ballroom dance in the first half of the 19th century. A fast whirling dance of circles, the waltz met the needs and passions of an emerging middle class. It was relatively easy to learn and therefore did not require expensive dancing lessons as the minuet did in the previous century. Uh, it allowed for a greater number of dancers in the ballroom dance floor, basically as many as the floor could hold. The sensation of spinning was a source of physical pleasure. In the early waltz, it wasn't a, a box step, it was a, you continually did clockwise circles while you did a large counterclockwise circle around the bar and dance floor. So you're continually spinning around at a fast rate, <laughs> uh, very fast rate. Uh, so that was a source, that vertigo was a source of physical pleasure. And because of that, it was scandalous, <laughs> uh, extremely scandalous. It might seem today by, tamed by today's standard, the waltz created a social outrage. People thought it was the end of civilization. <laughs> Countless of tracks were written, you know, decrying the waltz as the downfall of humanity. Uh, and part of this, it was the first ballroom dance which permitted dancers to dance face to face torso to torso for an extended period of time, for the whole dance, basically. Moreover, the centrifugal force created by the spinning motion required a tight and firm grasp, and the constant spinning motion visually blurred the couple's <coughs> perception. You know, if you spin around, everything becomes a blur, except the person in front of you. So it creates this intimate space personal space between you and your partner, and then so it takes everything else away. Uh, so it, it, the intimacy involved, the physical intimacy, uh, was what really created this outrage. There's one quote here uh, that I, eyewitness account of one person who sort of had an ax to grind, was a, kind of a critic of it, but it partly is probably true. The men grasped the long dress of their partner so it would not be trodden upon and lifted it high, holding them in this cloak, which brought both bodies under one cover, as closely as possible against them, and in this way, the whirling continued in the most indecent positions. The supporting hand lay firmly on the breast, and at each moment making lustful pressures. The girls went wild and looked as though they would drop. 
When waltzing on the darker side of the room, there were bolder embraces and kisses. It's all scandalous. Uh, so, Mei Jin will perform Chopin's first published waltz. This is the waltz opus 18 in E flat major. He wrote some other waltzes previously, but chose not to publish them. So this is the first one he decided, this is the one I want to go out into the world. Uh, and this was composed actually while he was living in Vienna in 1830 and 1831. And during this time, he had the chance to hear the waltzes of Lanner and Strauss, uh, the Viennese waltz. Uh, and I think you'll be able to hear that influence in this waltz. This is the most Viennese waltz out of all of his waltzes. So we'll go ahead and hear a performance.
so nice to have live music. <laughs> you have a question? Wouldn't it be super to have some couple dancing to that? It would. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> This is this is really a multimedia type of activity. <laughs> Matt, you have a question on that side? Was the pianist ever accompanied by other instruments? It, it depends what the venue was. For 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 Chopin's public, actually Chopin did not intend his music to be danced to, uh, but that didn't keep people from using it to, for dance music. Uh, he was pr pretty explicit about that, especially his mazurkas, but. We have a letter that his sister wrote to him while he was in Paris saying, oh, at the latest ball, we've, we've danced to your uh, Mazurka Opus 7, number one, and it came, actually came out in publication as a, dance, as a dance piece. But Chopin was trying to distance himself from all the thousands and thousands of publications of dance composers, many of them not very good. He was trying to, this was part of him trying to create a reputation of himself as an art composer. Uh, but then if you went to a ball, in the salon it was a piano, but if you went to a ball, you would have a dance orchestra. Uh, a minimum of two violins and a bass, but it could be as many as 40, 50 players uh, performing the dance music, especially in Vienna and Paris. Well, we have two more dances. Uh, Take my time. Yeah, okay. So we have the waltz. I'll go to the two Polish dances, the mazurka and the polonaise. The mazurka was Chopin's favorite dance. He wrote uh, over 50 mazurkas, more than any other type of dance or any type of composition, 50 mazurkas throughout his entire life. Uh, and it is in these mazurkas that he introduced some of his most quirky and innovative compositional techniques. Uh, and it's interesting to note that the freedom Chopin allowed himself within this musical genre is also evident in the mazurkas as a dance form, what you saw on the ballroom dance floor. The Polish dancing master Philip Galakowski writes, it is in, he's talking about the dance mazurka, it is in the mazurka that the Poles reveal their originality and as a result of their imagination, nothing is predetermined. <laughs> Neither the order of the figures, nor the sequence of the steps. There is no law where the imagination rules. And the French dancing master Henri Celeres echoes these sentiments. If it be true that the principal character of any art is variety in imagination, the mazurka most assuredly deserves this title. And this, the, the, the variety imagination is, is a problem, though. Uh, we don't have any surviving choreographies of the mazurka because there is so much freedom. We have descriptions, but no dancing master actually put down on paper how to dance a mazurka until about 1850. Uh, but we know it was danced you know, starting around 1810. But because of the improvisatory nature, they, they, it was up to the performer to decide. Was, the figures were based on the quadrille, we know that much. But beyond that, we don't really know. Uh, so it's interesting that the freedom in the dance form is expressed by Chauvin in the freedom in his compositional techniques. A common theme found in Chopin literature is the notion that the source of creative inspiration for Chopin's mazurka can be found in the peasant mazurka. Uh, 
However, in the 1820s, when Chopin was coming to age, there were two distinct mazurkas, the urban and the peasant. The urban mazurka, which was the type Chopin was most closely connected to, was largely an invention of French dancing masters who lived in Warsaw and taught dance in Warsaw. The French influence in Warsaw was great. The upper classes, the language they spoke was French, uh, up until about 1830. Uh, it was French culture that dominated. And the French dancing masters combined elements of the Polish national dances with figures drawn from those current Western European dances in constructing the mazurka. Uh, thus, what has often been cited as the cornerstone of Polish nationalism is in fact a mixture of national and foreign elements and a creation of the cultural elite. Uh, so Mijin is going to perform uh, Chopin's first published mazurka, Opus 6, number 1. And this, again, was what he composed this while he was living in Vienna in 1830 and 1831.
And now the Polonaise. Up until 1815, the Polonaise was by far the favorite dance of the Poles. It accounted for 96% of the published dance repertoire. After that, the waltz started overtaking in terms of popularity. Dating back to the 16th century, the Polonaise is a ceremonial dance which began each ball. It was also used to lead the dancers to the supper table midway through the ball, and I imagine it was danced slightly faster during that occasion. Uh, according to one commentator, right around 1820, the character of this dance carries its own poetry and national pride, and whose most outstanding feature is ceremonial serenity. It does not express a desire, but instead seems to be a triumphal parade." According to another, the Polonaise not only symbolized the character of the Polish nobility, but also the Polish aristocratic republic that was in place before the partitions. And in the time when Poland came under control of Russia, Prussia, and Austria, it served as a ritual dance that reaffirmed their conviction in solidarity as a unified nation and symbolized their cultural identity. Chopin's earliest surviving works are Polonaises, composed in 1817 when he was about seven years old. And I think you'll be able to hear this attitude of national pride and solidarity in the following Polonaise that Michin will perform. It's the Polonaise in A major, opus 40, number one, composed in 1838 in its nickname, not by Chopin, but his publishers, as the military Polonaise. Uh, and an interesting side note, during the September 1939 German invasion of Poland, okay, at the outset of World War II, the Polsky radio broadcast this piece daily as a nationalistic protest to the invasion to rally the Polish people. The Nazis later banned public performances of Chopin. We'll have a performance of this. Thank you. 
really makes you want to get up and <laughs> do something. Well, that, that really concludes my, my talk. Uh, the main thing that I wanted to, to provide you is a picture of Chopin as a man, as a, in a body who you know, danced and produced dance music. Uh, and I, I should mention that many of these soirees that he was at, he would improvise the dance music for the dancers. And it's very possible that these dance improv improvisations made their way into his published dance works. We have time for quite a few questions, so. Mm -hmm. Questions? Anybody on this side? I think we have one here and then where? What kind of dance would you do to the Polonaise? I'm trying to picture people out there. Yeah, it was more, it was more of a, like a march. It, it is a processional dance, so it was more of a, 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 a gliding walk uh, with long steps that you would do with your partner. And initially, they would line up with the highest ranking personages first, and then go back in the hierarchy of whoever was in the room. And then they would process into the ballroom. And then at various points, they would break off into circle figures, and then go group in and out. And so it was a very stately a walking dance, uh, basically. Yeah. Can we have a question back here? Yeah, um, I'm wondering if I were to go Google the names of these dancers, would I be able to find, like, say, a YouTube video that would actually demonstrate them for me? Because I would love it if you had been able to have some dancers to show us what yes. they look like. Uh, the Library of Congress has a, has a really good dance site. It's part of their um, American Memory Collection uh, that they have uh, short videos that you can access, the Library of Congress. Uh, but I, I'm sure, I mean, that, everything's on YouTube. Uh, I haven't searched it for that, for that but I'm, I'm, I would be surprised if you couldn't find something. Yeah. And this is a good moment for me to remind everyone that we put a recap of today's event on our website, rps.psu.edu, and you can listen to an audio podcast, you can uh, read an interview with Eric McKee, and, um, and there will be some links as well, and maybe we can add some links to the dances. I just wonder if you could just describe the mazurka. I always thought it was a wild, crazy dance, but it was rather slow music, so. Right, in, in this particular mazurka, you could, it was a little melancholy, uh, a little sad, and this was when, you know, he was in Vienna, and he learned of the uprising, and you know his, his heart, lots of his friends, his family was back in, in Warsaw, and so I think this this is starting to become an expression of his homesickness and of his, you know, of his culturally uh, speaking, you know, in his Polish voice. Uh, there there are three different styles of mazurkas. Uh, one is a very sort of fast, the oberek and lots of foot stamping, and then there's this. Kuujiak, which is a slower, more lyrical one, which is what you heard here. So there are different styles in his repertoire of it. Um, but in terms of exactly what they did, we don't know on the dance floor. We have another question here. Um, with all this talk of dance, I'm reminded of a wonderful event I saw in Jim Thorpe, uh, Pennsylvania, several years ago. Well, could be 40 years ago. Uh, <laughs> Anita Shapulsky had come from New York and bought a uh, church, which she transformed into a uh, art gallery. 
and she had an event where she invited a professor from Lehigh University to come and perform dances that he had researched from the 17th century, I think. And he came all periwigged and, uh, and uh, powdered and with a little mask he held in his hand and uh, that well-turned ankle, you know, with the silk stockings. And it was just wonderful. And uh, I would love to, it's such good theater. I would love to see that again. He just had this whole outfit and he did several dances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you're probably speaking of is the, the French court dance scene of Louis XIV, uh, with which you have the dance all do. The minuet was the, the, the most popular one, but you had the courant, the jig, uh, the rondeau, and all these. And uh, that's what dominated ballroom dance floors in the, in the 18th and in the 17th centuries. And that was really a dance of the, of the aristocracy, of the upper classes, where they, I mean, you, you learned how to dance when you're this, this tall, and you know, you grew up with that, and that really defined uh, who you were. But uh, I mean, that's interesting to say the well-turned uh, ankle, and actually for, for, for men, you know, you, you, you just had stockings up through here, and part of the man's uh, sexual appeal was how well-formed his calf was, and they often would stuff their calves uh, to make it seem larger than it actually was. And if you look at royal portraitures of King Louis XIV, the one thing you'll notice is that he's always sticking his wife out from underneath the robe to, to let us gaze at his, his well-formed, because he was a dancer, and he, he was a very good dancer. That's, that's part of his political control to get all his subjects to dance and keep their minds off other things. I think we have a question down here. Did Chopin uh, compose any of the foot stomping type of mazurkas? Yes, he did. Uh, th there, are, there are probably uh, 10 to 15 of that more lively, you know, types of mazurkas. Uh, more from his early part of his uh, life than later. Mm -hmm. He did. I think there's another question down this uh, Could you explain the difference in the tempos, tempi? of the mazurka and the waltz. They're both in three-quarter time. Yes, they Is there are. a difference? Um, I mean, I was trying to figure out the difference. So the waltz is the first beat accented and the mazurka. Second and third are equal? That's right. Generally, and that's true. The, uh, there's actually some confusion in, in some pieces of whether it's a mazurka or whether it's a waltz. They're both in the same uh, meter, three, four, so one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So they share that, and some of them are very close to where you can't really distinguish, except if Chopin actually played them in his performance style, you would know. Uh, but some general distinctions is the, the, the waltz has a strong downbeat, mm, pa, pa, mm, pa, pa, mm, pa, pa, and it is it typically a little faster. Uh, mazurkas are slightly slower and often have accented second or third beat syncopations. Uh, and there's there's some, and then, then the way Chopin did it. There there are some stories about Chopin's. His friends would come in and hear him play the mazurka, and they would say, "That's not in three four. You're doing it in two four. He would he would do these rhythmic things and these rebottles to make it sound like it was in a completely different meter than what was actually notated. And he got in arguments with them. So there's a lot more freedom with the tempo than in the mazurka as well. 
We have um, time for two or three more questions, and we have one from this young man here. <coughs> um, were Chopin's parents musically talented? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, his father uh, was musically talented, not a, a professional musician. His father uh, worked in Warsaw uh, as a French teacher. His, his father actually was French, uh, French-born, and then moved to, to, to Poland into Warsaw and taught the elite there, the cultural elite uh, French language. Uh, but then he had, he had the opportunity to, to study with very good uh, teachers at a very young age. Did you have a question down there? Anybody? No? Anybody else? Well, I guess we'll take that opportunity to, to close. And let's give an especially warm thank you uh, to Nathan Lake, Nathan, and to Eric.